Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We've started on our massive literature review to uncover every possible treatment for anxiety and depression. We're not going to get there, but if we can get to, let's say, 20% of all the possible treatments, and your average practitioner may know of, let's say, 2 or 3%, well, that's a home run, and that's the goal of the project. To find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is Dr. Michael Presti, PhD. He's a Mayo Clinic-trained neurologist, the CEO of Safe Rx Pharmaceuticals. And we're going to talk about opioids and uh, what's happening in the U.S. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Richard. Great to be here. Yeah, tell me about uh, SafeRx and a bit about your background. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, SafeRx, we're, we're developing a solution to a critical but previously unaddressed dimension of the opioid crisis. You know, I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners, just like uh, pretty much everybody in the world or any, everybody in this country, is uh, kind of viscerally aware of how much damage the uh, opioid crisis has caused in this country over the last couple of decades. And, you know, make no mistake, it's definitely an entrenched, complex, multidimensional problem. You know, there's never going to be any single, you know, silver bullet type of a solution. But what we've done is we've developed a solution to a dimension of this crisis that, according to data from the CDC, is responsible for almost a quarter of the prescription opioid overdoses, uh, which is a combination of opioids with alcohol together in the body. And we can talk a little bit more about this um, as we go on. But when those substances are in your body at the same time, uh, they just, they create such a, an immense hazard because they, they act in what's known as a synergistic way in the body. So uh, easy way to think of that is like, instead of a 10 plus 10 equals 20 type of an impact, you get more of a 10 times 10 equals a hundred type of a, of a uh, impact on your central nervous system, which ends up causing much more respiratory depression and just dramatically increases the risk of an overdose. So it's a 
all too easy to make mistake, which unfortunately is is extremely uh, deadly. And uh, what the data show is that, you know, although most patients are warned about this, a huge percentage ignore their physician's uh, recommendations to avoid alcohol with their opioid uh, and make this mistake, which which causes so much morbidity. And, you know, for the people- well, that- why, why would people do this in the first place if they're on opioids, which appear to be very strong, you know, for pain and other stuff, why would they then go to alcohol? Yeah, you know, I mean, the the why question is is always the million dollar question, right? So why do any of us do anything? But the 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 reason we think is because it creates a for a lot of people uh, when you abuse the medication in that way, uh, when you take or misuse it in that way, it can create more euphoria or you know more of a, of an intense type of an effect. Uh, not that it creates more pain control, right? But people do things against their doctor's <laughs> recommendations or or best wishes all the time, right? And so uh, this is just is one of those things that, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's the messaging that the doc is giving or, you know, and, and that uh, level of education, those warnings, they tend to come on multiple levels, right? The, the doc that prescribes the medication will tell you, you know, do not take this with alcohol. It's going to be very dangerous. The physician or the uh, pharmacist that's dispensing the medication will give you that same sort of education. You know, when you pick up the prescription, the bottle itself gives you the, the warning, right? It's, it's stamped right there in all capital letters on a bright yellow sticker, you know, do not drink alcohol with this medication. What the data show is that anywhere from 36 to 81% of long-term opioid users admit that they ignore those recommendations and they drink them with the medication in their system. So we know that, that, you know, what we're doing isn't working is basically the bottom line. And if we start from that point and we just accept that reality, I think that's the first step. Quick question here. Could the pharmaceutical companies add something to the opioid pills that would make someone just throw up if they had alcohol, if they start to ingest it? What about something like that? So that's exactly what what we're doing at SafeRx. So there's a a chemical that uh, actually was approved to treat alcoholism back in the 1950s called disulfiram. And uh, it's what's known as an aldehyde dehydrogenase inhibitor. Basically, it's an enzyme blocker uh, that interferes with an enzyme which is involved essentially only in the breakdown and metabolism of alcohol, but nothing else that's important in the body. So you can take this medication and if you don't drink with it, there's no perceptible effects, right? So it doesn't affect your body in any way unless you need to break down alcohol. If you put alcohol into your system, what happens is it interferes with this enzyme uh, that's involved in transforming one of the intermediaries uh, of alcohol breakdown And by blocking that enzyme, you get this really, really rapid increase in this toxic intermediate, this stuff called acetaldehyde. Basically, it's like the stuff that hangovers are made of, right? So very quickly, you know, within about 10 minutes, you get this this really noxious reaction. It's a constellation of symptoms. You get first, you get flushing and sweating, then dizziness, vertigo, right? The room starts to spin. And then you start to get a pounding headache and a, and a neck pain. And then eventually you get this intense nausea and vomiting, right? So at that point, okay, party's over. <laughs> it's kind of hard to keep drinking when you're, when you're not able to keep anything down. So that came out in the 50s. It was uh, marketed under the name Antabuse. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. And, you know, it, it had potential, right? Because it's extremely effective. I mean, if the person takes the medication, but 
the operative phrase there is if the person takes the medication, right? Just because, because like any medication, it only works if the person actually takes it. And so, you know, people realize very quickly, oh, you mean if I just don't take that pill in the morning, I can go back to drinking. Okay. And so, you know, very quickly it, it becomes a, a prescription that gets tossed into the trash can or to, at the very least it doesn't get refilled, right? So the, the medications that, that we've made are referred to as fixed dose combinations and they combine that disulfiram active pharmaceutical ingredient with one of four opioids. We started with the four opioids that are uh, responsible for the greatest number of overdose deaths, oxycodone, methadone, hydrocodone, and morphine. Uh, so we've paired each of those with the disulfiram, uh, and that gives the patient a very straightforward choice to make, right? Look, if you have a severe pain condition that requires treatment with an opioid, by all means, take the medication but take it as directed by your physician without alcohol, or if you don't need it and you'd rather drink, then drink, but you can no longer do both without getting really sick really quickly. It's as, as simple as that. Ethically, is this like a minefield to test? Like, you know, um, what if you were able to make something that, you know, okay, so let's say we add it to the pill. The person gets very sick because they had alcohol. Now they want relief from that. Um, should there be, or could there be a second pill that you would take? Like, you know, the reason I say it is I, I interviewed a guy that made a probiotic to help break down alcohol to reduce hangovers. But again, what if you not only supplied this with the drug, you know, with the hydrocodone or whatever it is, but again, you're then offered people something to take away the bad effects. Would that yeah. be possible? What would that do? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, you, you could theoretically, you know, give something that would drive the acetaldehyde uh, metabolism. Uh, this is something that will pass uh, in over the course of about an hour or so, assuming that they stop drinking. Right. So it's, it's very short lived. It's not like they're going to be nausea and, and, you know, sick and headache and all of this for days. You're right. It's a, it's an acute reaction. It develops within minutes of, of having alcohol in your system uh, and at that point, unless you keep drinking, right? So the, the magnitude of the reaction depends on both your blood alcohol concentration and the disulfiram concentration. So we're going with the lowest effective dose of disulfiram in these formulations. And with that, even at very, very low blood alcohol concentrations, you know, within the, the quote unquote legal limit, if you are going to be driving, you'll still get this, the, the beginnings of this type of a reaction. Right. So you'll get that warning sign right away. Like, Hey, Hey buddy, you're all flushed and red and sweaty and you look dizzy. Like what's going on? Oh, that's right. I'm not supposed to drink with this. Yeah, my doctor told me that it's if they were to, you know, perseverate and, and kind of keep going, then they'll start getting the throbbing headache. And then if they were to keep going, they'll, they'll start getting the nausea and the vomiting. So that's what we want, right? We want those 
sort of level of aversion to kind of escalate right incrementally. So the person first would get a very kind of soft nudge of a warning of, hey, you're not supposed to be drinking with this medicine. This is going to start to feel really bad if you keep doing it. And so, yeah, no, we we don't think that we need to uh, give anything that would reverse the reaction. The way to reverse the reaction is just to remember what your doctor told you, which is not to drink with the opioid because it's so dangerous and stop drinking and it'll pass. No, that's, that's very interesting. It sounds like a really good thing. What about, I mean, I know this is a different subject, but what about a, you know, let's say someone's on opioids and what I've seen from what I've seen again, directly only a few times is the pharmacy will say, sorry, we're not revealing the prescription. Goodbye. Good luck. And then the person, you know, can have all kinds of physiological problems. What if you were to create a, um, a set of pills that had substances in them that would reduce the effect of the opioid? So they'd have like a tapering final prescription, let's say, that would be for 10 days. And each pill would have, let's say, less and less ability to make you feel what opioid makes you feel. And it would help you taper. Any thoughts on something like that? Yeah. So that, you know, that's a strategy when a patient's been identified as not needing, right. Not, not being appropriate for a long-term opioid, which is a, you know, we could talk about that for hours, right. The fact that undoubtedly there is a certain subset of people who are on chronic opioids that shouldn't be on them. Right. But we're focusing on the patients that do have, you know, a legitimate indication for this and that opioids are effectively the only thing that provide them with adequate analgesia, which is a large number of people. I mean, you know, we've we've made great progress in terms of reducing the number of unnecessary or inappropriate opioid prescriptions over the last few years, but yeah, you know, we're still filling something like 151 million per year just in this country, right? That's that's one for pretty much every other adult in America, right? So they're out there. Now, your question is when you've identified somebody that isn't appropriate for opioids that you want to taper off. Uh, yeah, there are those types of uh, tapering methods in place. Uh, you either go to a lower dose or sometimes you, you go down to a opioid of lower potency. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So it's still occupying the receptor, right? It's still sort of tickling those those pathways in the brain to the extent that you can reduce the craving and, you know, what's referred to as dope sickness, right? So if, if you're addicted or you're dependent on an opioid and you were to stop, then you'll get nauseous and sick and, and a lot of that. So again, I said we could talk for hours about it, but yeah, we're getting into now what was definitely one of the forces that has contributed to the the spike in illicit opioid deaths, right? So back in 2015, the CDC put out guidelines that uh, were supposed to help providers titrate down, right? decrease the dose uh, of patients and give them kind of some guidelines about well, where should they be used? What kind of doses should be used? And when those guidelines came out, a lot of practitioners tried to implement them very quickly. And, you know, there were patients that were on three, four, five times the upper limit of the CDC's guidelines for their maximum daily dose. And if you take a patient who's been on a dose like that for years, well, their body has habituated to it, right? So they've developed tolerance to it. And if they truly did require anything near that dose to achieve pain control, and now you're trying to cut it to a third or a quarter of what that established dose was, the point is you're, you're going to precipitate withdrawal. 
right? And so that led to a lot of the transition to the illicit market, right? And so over the last couple of years, in conjunction with this reduction in the number of opioid prescriptions, we've seen a significant increase in the number of uh, illegal, you know, illicit market types of opioids like heroin, illicit fentanyl related deaths. And so it's a, it's a very nuanced topic to say the least. Yeah. That is like methadone or buprenorphine or uh, a couple of examples of opioids of lower potency that patients are often transitioned on to. Yeah. I could see, I, I guess you're right. There's a whole bunch of issues. Like what I see is your guys' technology really, you know, once it's shown to be working, I, I don't know if it is, it needs to be licensed to Vicodin, Percocet, you know, oxycodone, hydrocodone, et cetera, all of them, because, you know, someone now needs to get off of it. I can see why people might turn to alcohol when they're trying to get off of the opioids, because maybe they feel like that's the only thing that'll blunt the negative effects of having less or stopping. And then if you don't, if, you know, if, if every opioid doesn't have this, it's not licensed to them. You know, I'm on X, I may want to shift to Y. If I can get a doctor to do it, then I avoid the alcohol mitigating effects of what you guys are doing. So it seems like it would have to eventually be, I guess, mandated maybe by the CDC or FDA to be included in all these opioid-like products if it's successful, you know? Yeah, and you know, you've touched on a really important point there. So both the CDC and the F- FDA now uh, take a very clear position. You know, the CDC is... Uh, there is no safe level of alcohol use for patients using opioids. They say it very explicitly. No alcohol level is safe. The FDA even goes one step further in uh, their advice to prescribers, and they say opioids should be avoided in patients using other central nervous system depressants or alcohol. So the FDA's position is if they've got a history of alcohol problems, don't prescribe an opioid in the first place. Now, Again, that comes back to, you know, as the physician, you've got a patient, right? We docs go into doctoring because they want to help people. And if you've got somebody who's in pain, who you've tried everything other than an opioid, and it's not a providing them with adequate analgesia, and they have no quality of life because of that, well, then that's somebody that you may want to consider using an opioid on. But if there's this other problem that you know that they're high risk based on their history, that even if you you spend you know the next 30 minutes talking them all through the hazards of drinking with the medication, you still know that they're going to be at high risk of doing it and, and avoiding or ignoring that advice that you're giving them. Well, that's the perfect patient where you want to consider this type of a formulation, right? So just to be clear, we have no interest whatsoever in creating new opioid patients, right? There's enough people on opioids already. What we're trying to do is convert the people that are on those traditional prescriptions that we know are at high risk for drinking with them, which dramatically increases the risk of overdose and other adverse events onto a formulation that's safer and more appropriate for them. So yeah, to get to your question about licensing, uh, we our intent is, is most definitely to license these medications to other pharmaceutical players And there are a lot of forces that we think are going to facilitate those types of strategic partnerships. So for one, you know, I mean, I I think the ire of the public and of the courts, right, and and the billion plus dollar uh, settlements that uh, a lot of the manufacturers have had to pay out have at least opened their eyes to the importance of, all right, we need to be doing everything possible to enhance the safety profile of these inherently dangerous medications. 
And beyond that, there was a big push back around 2014, 2015 by the FDA to come out with uh, a new type of opioid or new classes of opioids referred to as abuse deterrent formulations. And that was a great idea. It was based on this, hey, there's way too many people that are dying from these meds, meds provided by physicians, right? Which was really one of the things that led me to start this company is, you know, physicians take an oath. We take an oath to do no harm. That's supposed to be what's guiding our practice, right? Putting the, the safety of our patients in the forefront. And so you, you start from that point. And then if you're, you're as a, a company, right, you're trying to say, look, we're doing this for the benefit of people. We're trying to mitigate pain and suffering. Then how do you not do everything possible to make them safer? And the original idea was, oh, okay, the way we're going to make these safer is we're going to target inappropriate routes of administration. So we're going to make it harder for people to crush up and snort or solubilize and inject the opioid, right? Which kind of makes sense in terms of like a science textbook sort of way. Like if you look at the pharmacokinetic parameters, yeah, if you crush and snort or you inject an opioid, the blood levels reach a much higher peak and they reach a peak faster. And so that both increases the risk of an overdose. And that's why people abuse or misuse the medicines in that way. Because if you do that, it tends to, you know, induce more euphoria. The problem is there was really never any epidemiologic data that said, this is accounting for a huge disproportionate number of overdoses. Look at all of these people that are dying because they're crushing and snorting or solubilizing and injecting their opioid, right? There was never data to say that, but because it made sort of sense, you know, like to us geeks and science people sitting around like a chalkboard or a whiteboard or whatever, looking at the, the, the you know, pharmacokinetic considerations and things like that, that was the, the basis for all of the abuse deterrent formulations that have been approved by the FDA to date. So they all have this either a, what's called a chemical mechan- or a mechanical barrier to, to crushing it and, and using it in that way. Now, what we do have data from the gold standard epidemiologist, right, the CDC, that almost a quarter of these overdoses, especially with prescription medications, it's not because the patient's crushing it, snorting it, or injecting it, or taking a giant handful of them. It's because they make this all too common mistake of having a few drinks when the opioid is in their system, right? So if we, if we start from a you know, a root cause analysis based approach. And we look at, all right, what is dry? That's why I said in the beginning, you know, this is a multidimensional problem, but there's never going to be a silver bullet that, you know, vaccinates us from the opioid epidemic. We have to come at it with a multidimensional approach. And so if we start with that informed, you know, root, root analysis informed approach, that's going to give us the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak. And what we know now is that this is this very problem is all too easy mistake contributes to about a quarter of, of the lives that we lose from prescription opioid overdoses. What are some of the hallmarks of whether or the determinants of whether someone will use alcohol with opioids or not? Does it happen right off the bat? Whoops, I didn't realize. Or does it happen only after substantial like, uh, you know, use for weeks or months is set in? Like, what's it look like? Yeah, great question. 
so what we know is that the people that would be considered highest risk are people who have a history of alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence. So what the data shows is that they're actually 500% more likely to overdose on their opioid. So five times more likely. And so anybody with, with that type of history, or frankly, with a history of polysubstance abuse of any type or substance abuse of any type, because when you are predisposed to one type of substance abuse, it by definition makes means that you're you're predisposed to uh, other classes of substance abuse or with any history of overdose. So if you've got a history of alcohol abuse, dependence, any type of drug overdose or polysubstance abuse, whether it's involving alcohol or not, that would be the ideal patient who would be considered high risk for this type of a, of a mistake. And again, what the data show is that more than a third, so anywhere from 36 to 81%, depending on what patient population you look at, of long-term opioid patients admit, yep, the doc tells me not to drink, but I got to be honest here, I drink with my, with my medication. So we know that, that this is something that we need better solutions for, because right now, the only thing the doc could do other than education is they could prescribe that disulfiram, right? right? Like they could prescribe a second medication, the antabuse and say, you know, I really want you not to drink with this. So please take this other second drug every day when you take the opioid and that's going to keep you from drinking. Well, guess what? If they want to drink, they're not going to take that second medication. Well, again, why do people drink when they take opioids? Is it just because they normally drink and again, they don't think about it? Or is there a specific reason tied to the opioids that makes them drink? Yeah, I, th- I think it's that, you know, the, you know, if we take a step back, we we get bombarded with warnings, right? Not not just with regard to the pharmaceuticals that we, we hear about or that we take, but with pretty much everything in our lives. And some of those warnings, you know, especially with pharmaceuticals are frankly, you know, pretty remedial. Like uh, don't take emgality if you're allergic to emgality, <laughs> you know? So like, well, yeah, of course. What, you know, that was obviously something the lawyers told you you had to put into the, to the statement there. So I think we become inured a lot to uh, many of the warnings we get. And so that contributes to some, some element of the, uh, of the, you know, disregard for the, for the warnings that, that these patients get from their prescribers and then to your point, you know, do some people do it just because like, hey, I, you know, I, I got to have a couple of glasses of wine at the end of the day. That's just what I do. Yeah, uh, probably that has something to do with it. And, you know, then there's another part of it where people have, you know, learned that they are more impaired or are you know, more euphoric or that they get a, a higher high when they drink uh, and take opioids together. And so that's, you know, the, that's what we're, what we're up against. The good news here is that the patient from a kind of a business standpoint, the patients aren't the customers, right? So in other words, the, the patients who are going to benefit the most from these medications are probably going to want them the least because they want to be able to drink against their doctor's orders when they have the opioid in their system. For whatever reason, they're willing to take that risk for that, that increased level of euphoria that they derive from doing that. But, you know, they don't just get to go to Target and, you know, walk down the opioids aisle and decide, okay, which formulation do I want? Oh, I want to take the one that gets me high, right? They get the formulation that the physician prescribes, that the physician thinks is best for them. 
So the doc is, is the prescribers are the customers. And for them, you know, the value proposition is, is clear and compelling and it's twofold. You know, on the one hand, we're all supposed to be, you know, operating with that, like put the patient of your, uh, put the safety of your patient first, right? That's supposed to be guiding all of our decisions. So check box right there. It's, it's obviously safer for them to give them the, the formulation that would prevent them from drinking. But, you know, from a just pure protect myself kind of standpoint, it's also protecting their medical practice, right? Because if, especially if you've got a patient who, you know, based on their established medical history is high risk, they've, they've been in and out of alcohol rehab, you, it's all through the notes, you know, alcohol problem, liver issues, whatever. And you had the option to prescribe an opioid that would have prevented that drinking and you didn't. Well, you know, at that point, it might not be enough to just say, well, you know, I documented and, and I, I told the patient that they shouldn't drink with it, but uh, put it in my notes. So, you know, I'm covered. Well, you know, I guess, but again, number one is that's not how we're, we're supposed to be making our decisions, right? We make our decisions based on, on protecting our patients and, and putting their safety first. And number two, like if you just throw that whole, you know, angle of it, you know, to the sideline and you don't even think about it. This is also protecting those physicians practice because it, it, again, if, if one of your patients dies on a medication that you prescribed and they died from a very predictable overdose, then, you know, how do you defend not using the formulation that would have prevented it if it was available right now, there's no such thing available. So, you know, the best we can do is we give them the education we document that, you know, we, we had that talk, we told the patients not to drink, but really that's it. Then it's up to them, right? And the patients can choose to, to take that, that warning and to heart or to, to ignore it. And again, what the data shows that a really scary eye number, uh, just ignore that advice. I mean, what if when you take opioids, you get such complete relief, let's say for the first few times or week or two, and then that leads you to say, you know, Oh, I felt totally relieved. Now I'm not feeling that. What can I do to amp up the effectiveness of this stuff so that I feel like I felt when I first, you know, I'll just say got high on it, you know, or like any other drug. Maybe that's that's part of the inherent problem is that the opioids work too well in the beginning and they just lead you to these, you know, these behaviors later on. It's like, I got to get back there. I'm going to take more of them. I'm going to, you know, do all kinds of stuff to amplify it. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you're, you're touching on a, a huge problem about, you know, that, that overlap between medications for therapeutic purposes versus recreational purposes and, you know, getting high and certainly opioids will get you high. That's why we have such a humongous problem in this country with them. But, you know, if, if to get to beginning of the question about if, if they worked initially and, and now they're not working as much, that's actually to be expected. Um, it's universal that anybody who's taking a long-term opioid is going to develop some level of physiologic tolerance to the opioid. And that that's not just for uh, the analgesic, the pain response, right? But it it's across the board. So you get some tolerance to the ventilatory suppression, right? To that, that decrease in the breathing drive. So if I were to take a, you know, a hundred milligrams of oxycodone right now, I would die right? But there are people that have habituated to that type of a dose that take that routinely, and they don't die, right? Because their respiratory suppression, they've developed some tolerance to it. 
the reason that that dose was titrated so high in the first place was because the the amount that's needed to provide the pain control similarly increases over time and and that's why it, you get into such a danger zone in the long-term patients because so many of them are on very high doses of the opioid because that's what was required over time to keep the pain control uh, in check. And there's a dissociation between the level of tolerance you develop to that analgesic response and to the, the level of tolerance that you can achieve in those other body systems, right? So now the higher the dose goes, the wider and wider that that safety margin or the narrower and narrower that that safety margin becomes between, you know, giving a dose that's high enough to control the pain, but not high enough to cause the body to forget how to breathe when you're asleep. Right. And so when you're, you're out at that point, now introducing a second substance like alcohol just is why it's so dangerous because now you've got this extraordinary suppression of the ventilation. And that again, leads to the, the, the markedly increased risk of respiratory arrest. So what's the clinical pathway look like for what you're doing? How long, what's, what are the steps? Yeah. So we, we actually, you know, in contrast to the nine to 10 year typical pathway for a, a novel chemical entity to come to market and get FDA approval, we're looking at a much more expedited pathway of about two and a half years. And that's because the individual active pharmaceutical ingredients that are in these products have already gone through the FDA approval process for their respective indications. So what, what we uh, will leverage is something known as a 505B2 pathway, where we can actually pull forward the prior agency findings of safety and efficacy from the, the original application packages for each of these drugs. We can pull those forward into the new drug applications for these combination products meaning that the, the scope of studies that we need to do to get that FDA approval is, is markedly paired back relative to that traditional clinical trial pathway. So, you know, contrast the nine to 10 year pathway with a, anywhere from, you know, hundred million to over a billion dollars to develop a drug to what we're looking at, which is about a two and a half year pathway to get approval of our first product on a budget of about five to $6 million. So, very, very capital efficient and time efficient process by leveraging both that 505B2 legislative policy. And then there's something known as priority review with the FDA, uh, which is since these products address a declared national public health emergency, and since there aren't uh, any alternatives that, that answer, you know, solve this problem, uh, these will qualify for priority review, which means that the FDA We'll approve them or deny that. We'll make a decision on it within six months, which is uh, less than half of the time that's typical for their review uh, process. So putting those together, we're, we're expecting our first drug approval, uh, 28 and a half months is the timeline. Well, where can people go to learn more about SafeRx? Uh, thank you. Yeah, um, a couple of places. So uh, you can go to our website, which is saferxpharmaceuticals.com, all one word saferxpharmaceuticals.com. Uh, and we actually also uh, recently opened an equity crowdfunding uh, opportunity to try and raise money to um, get our first drug approved. Uh, that's a $5 million round. Um, the SEC has uh, very tight rules about uh, me going into the terms of that offering. So uh, I can't talk too much about it uh, on your program, but I would definitely encourage anybody who's interested to check us out at investinsaferx.com. 
com. I was just going to say thank you for coming on the podcast. That's all. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. Thanks a lot, Richard. I appreciate you having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.